0: you are listening to the central church podcast to learn more about central church including our gathering times please visit gocentralchurch.org today's talk comes from pastor ethan crowder Now, uh, nobody really likes change, right? And we, we might say, that, hey, we're okay with change, we like change, but nobody really likes change. I have a friend, uh, his name is Wayne. Wayne told me one time that the only people who like change are babies, right? Uh, no one really enjoys change. Some of y'all will get that baby joke here in like five minutes, I promise. Um, my wife told me this morning, I laugh at your jokes when they're funny. Um, uh, that was Wayne's joke, not my fault, right? Uh, If change were easy, if we like change, we would all do it, right? If change were easy, we would all eat healthy. We would all go to the gym. We would all have money saved. We would all drive the speed limit. And I wouldn't drink as much Coke Zero as I do, right? But change isn't easy, is it? Change is difficult. Change isn't necessarily something that we enjoy. It's obviously not something that comes natural to us. We can agree that change is hard, and here's the truth, lasting change, or what we might call real change, is even harder. What if I told you that change isn't just possible, but that change is available to anyone and everyone who would want it? What if I told you that there is a way for you to change your life starting today, and that way is guaranteed? Would you be interested? Yeah. I, think, I think we all would say, hey, there's things in my life that I want to change. There's things in my life that need to change. Well, this kind of change is what we see here in Philippians 2 this morning. Here we see this, that a heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. A heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. Now here in just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word. And we're going to read a lengthy passage this morning. We're going to read every verse. And here's the reason we're going to read every verse of this passage. Because I believe, we believe here at Central, that the most important part, the best part of every sermon of every Sunday morning is God's word, right? Everything else is just filler. Everything else is just fluff. So you might say, Ethan, why are we going to read 18 verses? We're going to read 18 verses because this is God speaking to us today, all right? So let me invite you to stand as God speaks to us this morning here in his word Beginning in verse 12, the Spirit says to us this morning, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me today? Uh, Father, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us in your word. And Father, we want to hear from you this morning. And so Father, we pray that you would make your word and your will and your way clear to us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, in this passage in Philippians, Paul uses an interesting phrase, a phrase that has caused a lot of confusion in the, uh, the history of the church as people have read this passage. He, he uses this phrase to work out your own salvation. Now, we've got to be careful in the way we read this. And so we're going to dive into this phrase here in just a minute. But as we do this, as we look at this passage, we're going to see three ways uh, that we're called to work out our salvation. We're going to unpack, well, what does it mean to work out your salvation here in just a minute? Well, the first way that we do this is this, is to work out your salvation by obeying God's word. Work out your salvation by obeying God's word. Now, obedience sometimes has a bad rap, right? It gets a bad reputation in our world, in our culture, for any number of reasons. As soon as we're told to obey, uh, suddenly that uh, that child within us wells up and we think no one's going to tell me what to do, right? I'm a grown man. I'm 15, right? No one (laughs) is going to tell me what to do. But obedience... This passage shows us that obedience is for our joy. Obedience to God's word is for our joy. And ultimately, it is a gift from God. See, a heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. And a life changed by the gospel is a life that is lived in obedience to God's word. Because in obedience to God's word, we don't find chains, we find freedom. See, in obedience to God's word, we live life the way that we were meant to live it. We live life the way that God has designed us to live our lives. Now, Paul begins his argument by building on what comes before. Last week, week, Pastor Mike preached a wonderful sermon on the first 11 verses of Philippians 2. In fact, I would say that those first 11 verses of Philippians 2 are probably the most verses in the entire passage, in the entire book of Philippians. Everything that Paul's going to say is going to build off of those 11 verses from last week. And so uh, he says, therefore, what he's about to say is supported by what he has just said. He said the the Philippians, they've obeyed God's word by humbly counting others as more important than themselves, by, by considering Christ Jesus, who took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul is saying, look, you've obeyed, right? You've done this, now keep obeying. Whether I am in your presence or not, obey. Whether I'm there to see it or not, obey. Obey God's word. Now how do they continue in their obedience? And this is where that phrase comes in. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. What's he talking about there? Notice Paul doesn't say to work for your salvation. No, he says work out your salvation. What Paul is doing is he's calling us not to work for our salvation, but he's saying that that word work, that's obey, right? Uh, To work from your salvation. That because you have been accepted by Christ Jesus, because you have been saved, work from that salvation. Live out your salvation. He's not saying that if you do enough things, then you'll be made right with God. Right? He's not saying that if you check off enough boxes, then God will love you. He's not saying that you need to believe in Jesus and you need to do this. That's right. That's right. No, he's saying work from it. Work out your own salvation. Live out that salvation that you have experienced. Live out that salvation that you have been given. See, Paul's assumption here is that he is speaking to believers, this word, this letter, it's not some general letter that's just going out in a newsletter email blast, right? It's not something that's put out there for the entire world to read. Now, this letter had an audience. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 1. To all the saints to all the holy ones in Christ Jesus. So Paul's writing to people that he's assuming are already Christians, and so when he says, work out your salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation. No, he's saying because you're already saved, then live it out with fear and trembling. See, the salvation that he's talking about, it's not being made right with God through our works and through our efforts and through our trying. No, Jesus Christ has already done that on the cross. What he's talking about is how our salvation affects our lives. In other words, your salvation has an implication for the way you live your life every single day. Right? That we don't just live out our salvation on Sundays when we, we come in and we sing and we hear preaching and we give and we go to a small group and then on Monday nothing matters. No, Paul's saying every single day your salvation has implications, your salvation has ramifications for the way you live your life and so you should live your life in obedience to God's word. You, God. Now verse 13 What Paul says is this is impossible to do on our own. He says, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God gives us the desire to work out our salvation, and he gives us the ability to work out our salvation. Uh, apart from God, we cannot do this. Right? Uh, apart from God's spirit, it is impossible for us to do. One commentator, he puts it like this. Christians work out that which God has already worked in us. Amen. So here's the thing. Apart from God's power, our obedience isn't just hard. It's impossible. As we were singing here just a minute ago, one of the lines talked about how uh, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. Well, how is the Spirit at work in us? The Spirit is at work in us to will and to work our salvation out, right? In fear and trembling for whose pleasure? For God's pleasure. Because ultimately, our obedience brings God pleasure, See, this is good news for us. It it pleases God to work his power in us. He takes delight in our obedience. And so we're not working for our salvation. Understand this. We're not working for anything. We're working from what we have already been given. Right? It's, it's It's kind of like this. So I've got, I've got some, some kids, right? Uh, whenever, when, whenever we play games in the backyard, most of the time, I don't let them win because they need to learn how to lose, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I typically don't let them win. But every once in a while, with the girls, right, and only one of them's really big enough to play, uh, I'll let her win. See, in that situation, there is no way for Nora to lose what Paul is saying here is that if you've been saved by Jesus Christ then there's no way for your salvation to not be worked out in you because God never fails right God can always do it his power is always strong enough his power is always great enough if you remember back to verse 6 of Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you he might finish it no he will finish it right he does finish it we don't have to wonder he does it. Yes. The Bible says that God takes delight in our obedience. Like I said, I, I've got some kids. I, I've got Nora, who is seven. She'll be eight in a couple weeks. And then I've got Olivia, uh, who will be one uh, in a, I, a few days, too. <laughs> uh, uh, I got their birthdays mixed up. Olivia's the end of the month. Nora's the beginning of the month. Um, well, Olivia will be one soon. And so this is... It's a fun stage, uh, but we're constantly looking for how can she hurt herself, right? Uh, she is crawling, um, and she's, she's just really started crawling. Uh, before that, she would lay on her belly and she would kinda do this army scoot crawl thing. And I remember when, when Nora was a baby, she was our, our firstborn, I wanted her to walk so bad. And then she started walking and I realized, Lord, just let her go back, right? Uh, I, I've gotta chase her around. I wanted Nora to learn to walk so bad. And so we would, we would help her. She would, we'd hold her hands and she would, she'd walk on my feet or she'd, she'd kind of walk in front of me. But as soon as I let go, she would fall down and she would start calling again. And she started building confidence. And we, we wanted her to walk, right? We, we had our phones out. They were ready. I mean, they were live streaming to Instagram, Facebook, grandparents, right? All of these things. We wanted her to walk. And she finally stands up. And she takes a couple steps, and because babies' heads are bigger than their bodies, right, she falls down. Now, she took those couple of steps, she didn't make it very far, she falls down. You know what I didn't do? I didn't say, what's wrong with you? Right? I, I, I didn't say, how can you not do this? No, she took those couple of steps and we clapped and we celebrated and we cheered because she was making progress, right? She was going in the right way. See, I think a lot of times when we think about the Christian life, we think about our obedience, we think about that, hey, when we fall, God says, I can't believe you would do that. But the good news is that isn't what the Father says, exactly. right? That in Jesus Christ, right, He says, I'm pleased. Our obedience, no, no matter how small or how great, pleases the Father. And whenever we fail, whenever we fall, whenever we sin, there is grace. It's what Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, you might hear that and say, well, then that means I can go on sinning. And Paul anticipates that, right? In Romans 7, he says, then should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? You know what Paul says? By no means. That doesn't mean that we just keep sinning and we abuse God's grace. But what it does is it reminds us that whenever we take those couple of steps and we stumble and we fall and whatever it is, God is not there to punish us. God is there with grace. And that's good news for us. This is a small picture of the pleasure that our obedience brings to the Father. Now in verses 14 and 15, we get this picture of what obedience looks like. It's a life free of grumbling. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. Now, when we read that, we might read that and we might think, okay, that, that kind of comes out of nowhere. That's a little strange. But for Paul's Jewish audience, they would have known exactly what he was doing. Because see, what Paul's doing all through this passage is he's alluding and he's quoting the Old Testament. And so he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you were to go to Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, you would see that God punishes Israel for grumbling. In Deuteronomy 32, 5, Israel is called a crooked and twisted generation. In Daniel 12, we see that those who conquer with the Messiah, they will shine like lights in the world, See, what Paul is doing here is he's showing that the new covenant church is the inversion of the old covenant Israel. Right, that where Israel has failed, Jesus has succeeded. And where Jesus has succeeded, his people are given his reward, given his righteousness. And so what Paul is saying is, saying, look, don't be like your fathers under the old covenant. Live as lights under the new covenant. Right, Enjoy the grace that you've been given because now it's not that you've got to try and you've got to sacrifice, you got to do this. But now because Jesus is the final sacrifice and because the spirit is at work and Living inside of you, live as lights that shine in the world. Don't grumble and dispute. Don't complain. See, Paul calls us to an obedience that leads us to serious joy. He says, "The way you do this is you hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain." He's saying, "Look, hold fast to the word, so that that what I've done isn't wasted." That my ministry among you isn't wasted. Even if I, he says, to be poured out as a drink offering. He's saying even if I'm to lose my life, it's worth it if you run the race that is set before you. See, a heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. We work out our, our salvation by obeying God's word. Next we see this, that we work out our salvation by caring for others, Examples are a powerful thing. So about a week and a half ago, I made a decision that I'm still kind of going back and forth on. Was this a good decision? Was this a bad decision? We got a puppy, right? Uh, Now, as as one church member said, uh, congratulations and I'm sorry, right? Uh, (laughs) Some of you are saying, bless your heart, but I I don't know if it's like the real bless your heart or if it's when my grandma says bless your heart, you know what I'm saying? Um, And so we've been reading and, and doing some research on, okay, how do, we, uh, how do we train this puppy? His name is Bo. And one of the things that we've seen is that we need to socialize this puppy. We, we need to get this puppy around some other dogs uh, so that this puppy can see what it's like to be a dog. <laughs> An example is a powerful thing, right? Not just in dogs, but also in people. I've been, over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've been reading a book on the lives of some of our presidents. Uh, One of the presidents that's dealt with is Theodore Roosevelt. And one of Theodore Roosevelt's biographers said this. He said, the story of Theodore Roosevelt is the story of a small boy who read about great men and decided he wanted to be like them. He he had these examples and he decided, I want to be like them. Uh, I want to be like those men. Example is a powerful thing. And in the rest of this passage, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us two examples of how a heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. And he begins with Timothy. This is his first example. He begins by including Timothy. If you remember back to uh, the, the early parts of chapter one, Paul actually includes Timothy as one of the authors of the letter. Uh, but we know from the rest of this letter that this is Paul speaking primarily. Timothy certainly isn't going to offer himself uh, as an example, right? He's not saying remember the servant Timothy. No, this is Paul Paul saying, "Remember Timothy, or look to Timothy." Now, Paul's prevented by coming to the Philippians himself because he's in prison, but he says that he hopes to send Timothy. And as you read these verses, you can see that Paul's love for the Philippians and his love for Timothy are it's evident. He says that a good report from the Philippians will encourage him in prison. And that this, his whole letter is really an example of his love for the Philippians. See, Paul rejoiced at hearing that other Christians were flourishing. We've talked about this a couple times as we've looked through Philippians, that Paul would rejoice at hearing uh, good news that other Christians, they weren't suffering in prison the way he was. They, They weren't encountering this or encountering that, but they were flourishing. And that didn't mean that their numbers were growing, but it meant that they were growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what got Paul excited. The reason Paul woke up in the morning was because he was going to be used by the Lord to instruct, equip, encourage other believers. And that should get us excited as well. We should get excited when we see other believers growing. We should come alongside to help other believers grow because when we come alongside, when we disciple other believers, what happens is we ourselves grow. See, when we, we baptize people, we should get excited because that is not the finish line of the Christian faith. That is the starting line, right? We, we don't baptize and then it's over. We baptize and then we disciple. We, we walk with them so that they learn, they see what does it mean, what does it look like to follow Jesus. See, that's what got Paul excited, Paul was excited about caring for others. One of the ways he worked out his salvation, one of the ways we should work out our salvation is by caring for others. Now, Paul's love for Timothy is evident in this passage. Look at verse 20. He's talking about Timothy. He says, "'For I have no one like him "'who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. "'For they all seek their own interests, "'not those of Jesus Christ. "'But you know, Timothy's proven worth, "'how as a son with a father, "'he has served with me in the gospel.'" Now Paul's contrasting Timothy with those that he talked about in chapter 1 in verse 15, 16, and 17 about those that preach Jesus, those that preach Christ for selfish ambition. Paul says that's not what Timothy does, right? Timothy preaches Jesus because Timothy loves people. Timothy preaches Jesus because Timothy cares about you. He's saying be like Timothy. Now Timothy, like Paul, he's got this love for the Philippians, he's got this love for other believers, and he learned this from Paul. See, Paul taught Timothy to love the church. One of the marks of being a Christian in the New Testament is that you love the church. If you don't believe me, just take Jesus' word for it in John chapter 13. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, love the brotherhood. See, love, care, and concern for other Christians is a mark of a heart and a life that has been changed by the gospel. So I'd say if you don't have a love for the church, if you don't have a love and a care for other Christians, then something has gone wrong. It could be that there is unconfessed sin in your life. It could be that there's some kind of sin that is keeping you from loving other believers. Maybe it's that you have been hurt by other believers. You've been hurt by other churches, which is a real thing. And maybe you need to let God's grace wash over those wounds and wash over those hurts. But we never see in the New Testament where Jesus or where Paul or where any of the writers say, love the church until it gets messy. Love the church until it gets hard. Now Jesus says they'll know you're my, my disciples by the way you love one another. Love the brotherhood. Love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Now this change, this isn't something that happens instantly. It's it's part of working out your salvation. See, this kind of love is something that God works into our hearts as we read his word and as we pray for his grace. In other words, this is a supernatural love that doesn't just happen. Now, I would love to tell you that I fell in love with my wife uh, at uh, first sight, but it took time, right? It it took us getting to know each other. Now, I like to think that she fell in love with me at first sight, but I don't know, (laughs) right? Right? But it took time of, of us getting to know one another, of us growing in that love. Learning how to love other believers takes time. It, it takes patience. It takes grace. And ultimately, it's given to us by the Father. Now, this isn't a generic love and word only, but it's a serious love seen in action. Too often times, we kind of take this mindset that, that I love everyone, I just don't like any of them. Right? Maybe, maybe you're like that, right? Thanksgiving is coming. Uh, you're going to be with some family. Maybe you have that with family sometimes, right? I love all of them. I just don't want to spend any time with them. That's not the kind of love that we're called to here in this passage. Right, we're not called to a love that, that is just kind of in word only. No, we're called to a love that is in word and in deed. Right, we're, we're called to a love that is a love that is a committed, a commitment to other people. See, ultimately, we are to love others the way that God has loved us. See, he's loved, he loves us, and he's pleased by us. And so our love for others isn't to be driven by some kind of selfish gain, or that I'm going to love these people uh, until they give me a reason not to love them, or I'm going to love these people because they've got something to give me. No, we're called to love people, because we've been loved by the Father. And here's my promise to you. I, you, we, have offended the holy, righteous God of heaven far more than that person on the other pew has offended you. That's a guarantee. Because our sin is offensive. It offends others, but more than it offends others, it offends a holy and a righteous and a majestic God. See, we're called to love others the way that God has loved us. A heart changed by the gospel is going to lead to a life changed by the gospel where uh, we obey God's word and where we care for, we love others. And then the last thing we see is this, is that we work out our salvation by sacrificing through serving. Now we've got another example of what working out our salvation looks like. But now Paul uses the life of Epaphroditus. This is a life of serving through sacrifice. It's another example of a heart and a life that have been changed by the gospel. And now what we see in verse 25, that Epaphroditus, he was familiar to the Philippians. Look at verse 25. He says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And then here we go. And your messenger and minister to my need. So apparently at some point, the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Paul. And now Paul was ready to send him back. But at some point uh, between the, the sending and the returning, Epaphroditus becomes ill even to the point that they think he's going to die. But God, in His grace, He saves him. And here Paul celebrates the, the grace that Epaphroditus is in his life, but also in the Philippians' life. Now, if you look at verse 29, we've got two commands that the Philippians are to receive and they are to honor men like Him. Why are they to receive and honor Him? Because he risked his life for the work of Christ. So whatever this sickness was, whatever this illness was, this wasn't just a cold. No, this was something that Epaphroditus had gotten. He he had come into whatever it was because he was serving Christ by serving the Philippians and serving Paul. Now, he risked his life to complete what was lacking. You see that there in verse 30, what was lacking in your service to me. Now, what was lacking, if you were to go to chapter 4, Philippians, you would see that what has happened is the Philippians had committed some kind of financial support to Paul, and it had been delayed getting there, and so now Epaphroditus is taking this support to Paul. That's why he went to Paul as his messenger, and he's encouraging Paul, and now uh, Paul is sending him back. So we work out our salvation by sacrificing through serving. Now, here's, here's the thing. Risking it all is not unique to Epaphroditus. In fact, for most of the history of the church, this has been the case. Even today, most Christians in the world do not experience this. Most Christians in the world are not worshiping on the Lord's Day in a room with comfortable pews and Amplification and air conditioning and all of those things. Most Christians in the world do so at a cost to themselves. And here's what I would say we shouldn't get super comfortable because it only takes a few changes and then our faith is going to get real uncomfortable. And I'm not a prophet, I'm not a son of a prophet. I work for a non-profit, right? I'm, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> but my assumption is, is that that day where being a Christian is no longer easy is coming much quicker than many of us would like to imagine. So we need to be ready. See, our position as comfortable Christians is unique in history, and it's one we, we probably shouldn't get too comfortable with. Because God in his providence has routinely called his people to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, for whatever reason, and it's only his grace, our suffering as American Christians isn't really all that great. But God routinely calls his people to suffer for his sake because in his providence, that's the way he has chosen to work, not only in the world, but also in us. And now today is a special day, right? Today is a day not like typical Sundays, uh, because today, October 31st, 2021, is the 504th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. 504 years ago today, Martin Luther, uh, he had been studying Romans, and he Uh, Comes up with some ways that he sees that the church needs to change. And so he takes 95 theses and he nails them to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. And he doesn't intend to spark a reformation. Instead, he, he intends to spark some discussion. But we know the story. The reformation begins happening. Now, what we see in the Reformation is it's not only a Reformation of truth, right? It's not only a recovery of the gospel of grace, but it's also a Reformation and a recovery of love that the gospel brings. See, not long after Luther would uh, begin his conversations and and would basically spark the Reformation, something that we call the plague would eventually sweep through Europe. And and it would happen from time to time. And so the plague would sweep through Wittenberg, or if you're really smart and fancy, Wittenberg, uh, as Luther is there. And and what happens is everyone begins to flee the the city. Everyone begins to flee to the hills uh, and to the the rural areas so that they can protect and they can save themselves and luther he's speaking to his church and he says as believers we are called to serve by sacrifice in fact he said this in one of his sermons on the plague he said if my neighbor needs me i shall not avoid place or person but will go freely see luther knew that we were called to serve through sacrifice and it wasn't just in the Reformation, Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s, he, he encountered several cholera outbreaks in London. And he begins to tell his people that what an opportunity for the gospel, what an opportunity to go and to share the gospel and to tell people that even on their deathbed, it's not too late for Jesus to save but one historian, he, he's talking about Spurgeon this time, and, and he says this, he says that Spurgeon saw the plague in terms of the gospel because he saw all things through a gospel lens. Seeing all things through a gospel lens means that we see, we understand that at times the Lord calls us to serve through sacrifice, or, or to serve by sacrifice. Now our sacrificing it, through serving, it might not look like this, But we're all called to sacrifice and to serve others. Last week, we saw in Philippians 2 that we're to count others is more important than ourselves. And this counting others is more significant, more important than ourselves, it's gonna look different for different people, but it is what all of God's people are called to. We are all called to count others as more significant than ourselves. See, just as Christ did not come to be served, but to serve, we are called to serve. And this begins where Epaphroditus began, right? He began by serving the church. See, the church is God's plan for reaching the world. The way that we are going to reach our neighbors and the nations is through the church taking the gospel to them, right? And the church is in this building, right? We know that that the church are the people who make up the building, but we have been called to take the gospel to those who need it. That's why we do beauty from ashes, Beauty from Ashes is a way that we can connect hurting women with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we can connect hurting women and children with grace. The way that they can find peace and hope and know that there is a God who loves them and there is a man who has died for him, and that man is Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we do what we do. This also means that we serve others, trusting that the Lord is going to open doors for the gospel. See, our service isn't to point people to ourselves, but to our great God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, a heart changed by the gospel leads to a life changed by the gospel. We work out our salvation, we live out our salvation, we work from our salvation by obeying God's word, by caring for others, by serving through sacrifice. We might think of it like this, that the Christian life is to be lived every day. That's how we work out our salvation. We don't obey hoping that God is going to somehow love us more. We don't obey because we think that if I obey enough, then I'll force God's hand and he has to love me. We don't obey because we think we're going to earn something from him. Here's the truth, that because of Christ's death on the cross, God will never love us more, and he will never love us less. See, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted him to save you, then there's never a moment where God says, no, I love him a little bit more because he did this, or I love him a little bit less because he did that. No, in Christ, God is pleased with you, he's pleased with me. See the righteousness of Christ that that makes us right with God. It's not something that we earn with our own righteousness. It's something that we are freely given. See, our problem, your problem, my problem is that we have sinned and we have offended a holy God. And the default mode of the human heart is to think that, well, if I do enough, then I can atone for my own sin. But what the Bible tells us is that the more that we try to atone for our own sin, the deeper the hole we dig. Because we're trusting in ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that God has come to give us free grace. And notice he gives us grace, not a paycheck. He gives us grace... Not something we've earned. See, grace is unmerited or unearned favor. It's not something you can earn. It's something that God gives you. And maybe some of you are here today and you just feel weighed down by the world. You feel weighed down by all that you've done. You feel weighed down by your past or maybe even your present or maybe even what you went through today or this morning or what you're thinking about later. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't come to weigh you down. Jesus came to give you rest, right? Jesus came to take the burden of sin that you can't bear on himself see on the cross of Calvary Jesus took the penalty that your sin and that my sin deserves so that we don't have to bear that weight we don't have to bear that sin he has taken it for us right? he's borne our iniquities he's taken our transgressions and now if we will trust him then we can have grace we can have forgiveness we can have peace and we can have rest And so maybe this morning you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe this morning you need some of that peace and some of that rest and some of that grace. If that's you, we would love to talk with you about that, to pray with you about that, to to show you more about what does the grace of Jesus look like? Because we want you to be like the psalmist this morning. We want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Here's what, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Maybe you're watching online, you're in the room. We've got a number we're going to throw up on the screen for you. 407-338-4024. You can send a text uh, to that number with just your name and Jesus or I need to talk or something along those lines. And there's someone on the other end to start that conversation. Maybe say, hey, I need to talk to someone in person. You can, at the end of the service or right now, you can get up, you can walk out those doors, you can hang a right. It's our next steps room. There's people in there ready to talk to you about what does it look like to lay your life and your sin and your habits and your struggles and your addictions down at the feet of Jesus and to taste and experience his grace. Amen, amen. Maybe this morning, you just need to be reminded That you're not called to work for your salvation. Jesus has done it. Instead, you're to work out of that salvation. You're to obey, right? You are to work from that place of victory, not for the victory. And so maybe you should be reminded of that. Maybe you should pray that the Lord would remind you of the gospel this morning. That he would help you to preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. We're gonna sing here in just a minute. And this is a time to respond to God's word, to pray and ask the Lord, help me to remember the gospel. Help me to remember that because you've changed my heart. You've changed my life. Or maybe it's this time for you to say, Lord, I lay my life down and I need you to save me. Whatever it is, we're here ready to pray with, talk with, encourage, whatever we can do. Would you pray with me now? Father, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy this morning. Lord, we're grateful that you give real change, that you change hearts and you change lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, we pray that you would call the dead to life. God, that you would change hearts that are gripped by sin and that they would know your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are here this morning who have trusted you, Father, we pray that we would not feel like we need to carry the weight and the burden of earning something from you. That if we do this, then you'll love us more. But God, that we would know that in Jesus Christ, you have loved us perfectly. That in Jesus Christ, we have grace upon grace upon grace. And so Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would apply your word to our hearts. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.